Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. And today we are going to talk about what it means to come into the body versus being in the head. And we thought we would start with how I often start um, my group, how I always start my group calls for my courses, and how I sometimes start sessions with clients. And Victoria and I do this before we start recording. So we take about a minute to turn inward, close our eyes, and I would invite you listening if you can, if you're not driving, if it's safe to do this with us, to take about a minute of being in silence, being in a quiet space together. And the invitation in this minute is to, as best you can, drop down out of the headspace, that ever compelling head, which we will talk about, where we spend a lot of time, especially as highly sensitive people, and come into the body without overthinking what I mean by that. To simply spend about a minute noticing what's happening inward and downward, in your body, neck down. Even as I'm talking right now, starting to pay attention to any places of tightness, any places of tension in your body. Our bodies carry sensation and our hearts carry emotion and they are intimately connected to each other. So coming down into this often neglected realm of the heart body. Without agenda, trying to notice the voice that's saying, I have to get it right, I have to do it right. There's no right. It's just simply noticing what happens when you turn inward and downward, what you notice. Because for many people, when they come to this moment in a call, in a session, it's often the first moment in a day that they stop, just pause, giving themselves a pause in the otherwise run-on sentence of our lives, which are becoming increasingly faster, increasingly more head-based. And yet there's this huge invitation to pay attention and listen to and learn how to trust in the body. So for about a minute, and you will hear some chimes going off at the end of the minute, being in this quiet space and just noticing.
So I'm curious, Victoria, if you'd like to share what you noticed. I always have a hard time with this question. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Let's just start there. Mm. I notice a lot of thoughts mm -hmm. competing for my attention, but I was able to notice my breath and where mm. I felt my breath in my body, feeling mm. my chest and my belly expanding and contracting. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that I do this thing where I like carry tension in my feet. <laughs> mm. I'll notice myself that I'm like flexing my feet as I'm sitting. I'll notice this in therapy and we'll laugh about it because I'll be like, literally my feet aren't even relaxed right now and I'm just sitting mm -hmm. on the bed. <laughs> but I also feel some pressure usually in a moment like that, like, oh, I'm supposed to feel something special or I'm mm. supposed to be having some sort of special experience that I can report out on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I will admit I'm not proud of this but Cheryl sometimes when I've attended I've attended many of your webinars and sometimes when you call for the minute I don't take the minute <laughs> I always do before our recordings and I've I love that actually. I love the ritual we have created around recording mm -hmm. of just lighting a candle and taking the minute. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if it's your webinar or another like podcast that I'm listening to that maybe they incorporate a minute or a few minutes of tuning in, mm -hmm. I often reject it and I'm not proud of that. I do the same thing. <laughs> 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 I mean, I always take my own minute, but if I'm listening to somebody else and the invitation comes up, I often reject it also. Mm. And I expect a lot of people do, and that's okay. That's okay. Right? We take those minutes and those pauses when we can, and we're not always in the space to be able to take that minute, to want to take that minute. That's totally okay. But what's interesting to me, Victoria, is that you actually were very much able to drop in, to notice your breath, to notice the thoughts. Yes, they will always be there vying for attention. But you came even all the way down to your feet. I think people often do carry tension in their feet. People often, they're not aware. It's, there's all of these ways that the unconscious expresses itself. People who um, are sitting and are often shaking their leg, mm. right? That there's a nervous energy or there's a tense energy. This is the body communicating its wisdom. And even seemingly very well put together people who appear appear very polished and in control on the outside 
have a hard time hiding the body's expression and communication. It is more powerful than we are. Mm. And I'm curious, since we are delving into the body realm, if you've done any inquiry, brought curiosity to the tension in your feet and asking what your feet might need in those moments, or if not what they might need, what, what else you notice when you drop your attention down all the way to your feet? interesting I haven't done much inquiry I've noticed I don't do yoga as much anymore as I used to and as much as I would theor- theoretically like to <laughs> speaking mm-hmm. of being in the headspace yes but I notice when I do that often my feet get really I'll feel like cramping in my feet when I'm doing standing poses if I'm on mm. one foot for a while Mm-hmm. But I also notice if I do yoga and I spend some time massaging my feet, that that feels really good. Mm. Hmm. So I'm doing that right now, actually, because I often sit with my my legs like pretzel style. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm just massaging my feet right now nice. as we talk. Nice. And I know this is a leap and I'm watching my very linear brain that very much likes organization and structure and knows that we have an outline that you so beautifully put together for us before we record. And I'm, and I'm noticing how my head wants to follow the outline but my body wants to go somewhere else. Mm. Um, you know, like many of you, many of us, I have traditionally been a very um, good student, follow the rules. I knew how to get straight A's. Um, I knew how to color between the lines. And part of my journey as I as I share in my Trust Yourself course um, of coming into my body more and the journey of self-trust involved and what hinged upon shattering those boxes of what I thought I was supposed to do and the shoulds and the timelines and letting myself be messy, letting myself be incredibly imperfect letting myself make mistakes, not be polished. And so as we're sitting here, I'm so aware of our beautiful outline and all of the points that we want to communicate and share and express. And, and I, I trust that we will. Um, and then I'm aware of Marion Woodman, who is one of my most influential Jungian analysts, mentors, teachers, um, 
mostly from afar, although I did have some connection and contact with her at various points before she passed away. And how when she speaks, she, she used to speak in a spiral format. And so she's coming to mind, and the body of her work was about the body, coming into the body as our source of wisdom, the personal body, the earth body. And I think we are absolutely desperate for this return on the personal and the collective level to remember what it means or learn for the first time what it means to live in the body, live from the body, honor the body, respect the body, personal and global and other people's bodies. So what's coming to mind, Victoria, as you are bringing your feet into the conversation is this topic of an intrusive thought which comes up for people and it came up in my recent Instagram post and it came up between you and I (laughs) when we were talking about this episode. The what if fear, what if I come into my body because there are all kinds of fears that people have around coming into the body, trusting the body, and you named a big one. And then the person on Instagram echoed it. And it's one I've heard many times. What if I come into my body and I learn my truth? So this often comes up around relationship anxiety, but not only. My truth is that, and I'm going to let you <laughs> share what this, this scary truth that you're afraid to find if you come into the body is. Yeah. And it's it's one of the it's one of the fears yes. because also the polar opposite fear comes into my mind too. Mm-hmm. But one fear is what if I come into my body and I learn I'm just meant to live alone in the woods. <laughs> I just have this vision of myself as this older woman, maybe with like a dog, just hiking mm-hmm. through the woods and that's where I live and that's my truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so very common, as I said. When you take that truth literally, it's very scary. When you can understand it as a metaphor, as a messenger, it loses a lot of charge. When you can start to approach it with curiosity and creativity and imaginally, it becomes exciting. So it's this idea of unlived lives. And it's this idea that there's one true life, right? That people are very afraid. If I turn inward, I will discover my truth. And so the comment on Instagram came after my post talking about multiplicity, that the body carries multiplicity. The head believes that there is one right answer, one true path. The body holds both and it holds paradox, it holds ambiguity, it holds messiness. It loves those places, actually. And so when we approach that fear 
from a different mindset, from the place of the body, not from taking it as the truth, but taking it as a possible place inside of me that I can approach through my imagination and live it out in some way that doesn't harm my relationship in the current structure of my life. That from a Jungian perspective, and Robert Johnson talks a lot about this and the whole idea of unlived lives, you know, present day culture takes those thoughts very literally. If you have that thought, that is your truth. You are, you are supposed to explode all of these boundaries and go live your one true life. And Jungian, the Jungian mindset says, no, no, there is not one true life. There are many lives that we can live in many different ways. Some literally, most creatively, imaginally. So when you imagine Victoria, working with that fear creatively in this moment and letting your feet lead the way, I'm curious what arises. Oh man, people are getting me like real time. Like I draw, <laughs> I draw a blank sometimes or I get, I like really freeze up. Um, yeah. I really freeze up and I get really I don't know the word. Paralyzed, frozen, blank. Yeah. It's so common. I'm so yeah. glad this is coming up in real time. This is this is <laughs> yes, the point of the too. whole episode. <laughs> Yay, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> Subject A is Victoria. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> volunteering. <laughs> Lending your psyche. I mean, I think what's interesting is the other one that comes up for me, and I'm not trying to avoid it. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll come back to the woods. But the other one that comes up is almost the flip side of, oh, my truth is I should be living in a city with like a yes. milieu of in New York. intellectual, artistic friends. And, you know, there's a life where I dated around a bunch and had many different relationships and was this like bohemian, mm -hmm. urban, stylish woman. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's interesting. They're they're very different, but there's also something about it that I think is something about freedom. Yes. Something yes. about being really in touch with myself and being strong and decisive, I think, and independent. Mm-hmm. Bucking the system, not yeah. caring what anybody thinks. And there's mm -hmm. like, yeah, there's like a wildness to both yes. of those characters, yes. right? Yes. They're in different environments, but there is a wildness. Yes. Yes. Good. And I would say those are two of the most common fears and intrusive thoughts that come up for people, especially in your generation. Partially because we see both of those archetypes played out a lot. 
right? It's sort of the eat, pray, love, and wild archetype of I'm going to chuck everything and go hike in the woods and go leave all of the constructs and paradigms of the culture, right? And then there's this other archetype, this other character that shows up, I think probably in um, pop culture movies of the single free, unencumbered, young 20-something woman who who doesn't care about what other people think, lives her own life, has her own mind. So there's something, there's some through line in both of them that Mm -hmm. speaks to the longing for that place of freedom, of wild. And to me, that's the gem. That's, That's the piece that can be explored creatively. And it doesn't have to be in this moment. I sometimes go blank too. In the moment, if somebody's asking me a question like that, I do better exploring it in my journal, right? On my own time, when someone's not staring at me, waiting for an answer. I think it's important to name this piece, though, around the conversation of what scares us about the body? What scares us when we hear phrases like drop into your body? Your body carries your own wisdom. The truths that live in your body, and I think it's so important to emphasize the plural there, the multiplicity of truths that the body carries. It's not just one way. It's interesting to hear you talk about learning to be more imperfect and messy because I see you as so embodied. Like you were a dancer during school and you were fluent in Spanish, which I think of as being very, you have to be very embodied, I feel like, in some Mm. ways to Mm. speak another language. And I remember visiting you once for Everest Bar Mitzvah and you had a bunch of your friends there and you're holding hands and you're like, Hmm. we're going to go do a mikvah in the creek. And I was like, what's that? And you're like, we all get naked in the creek. And I was like, ah, (laughs) my East Coast Catholic side was just like, I'm going to go upstairs and read my book. Enjoy your mikvah. (laughs) Yes. Well, you also have to remember I come from Los Angeles <laughs> in the 70s, raised by lapsed Jewish hippie <laughs> parents. So very different culture, like two different planets, um, which definitely had its downside too. Um, but yes, it's part of how I grew up is having that relationship to my body. I always danced. Um Spanish was my first language because of my beloved housekeeper who largely raised me in those first few years. Um, And I think actually spending so much time with her is another reason why 
I am in my body. She was very in her body. So much warmth, so much affection, so much healthy touch. Mm. Um, also being raised with pets, with animals. Right? Our house was a menagerie at times. You know, I think at one time we had a dog and then the dog had 10 puppies. Oh. And <laughs> they were so cute. And we had a cat and the cat had five kittens. And we had birds and we had a rat, which was not my my friend. That rat lived somewhere else. Um, but animals are very embodied, right? So while I did have a transformational experience that brought me more into my self-trust and into my body in a different way, I already had that foundation because of, I think, just certain elements in my growing up years. I think that also for people who grow up in certain religious environments, there's a lot of, and even just culturally in Western cultures, there's a lot of disembodiment and there's a lot of messaging about your body being impure or inherently sinful or inherently bad. In some way, yes. inherently shameful in some way. Yes. And then when you add people who may have experienced trauma, there's like a whole other layer of being disembodied for many people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And dissociating. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, I, it can feel like, no, I'm just drawing a blank. There's nothing behind it. I just don't feel anything. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just drawing a blank. But then when I dig a little bit, there's usually a lot of different layers underneath that quote-unquote blank. Yes, so important. And I would like to spiral back to your feet in the forest at some point. Um, So we'll hold that image and we'll hold your feet over here as we explore what is behind the blank. What are the reasons why we are afraid to come into our bodies and into our hearts and they are different, but they are connected. Um, body is often the doorway. The sensations that we feel in our bodies, the tightness, the heaviness, the tingling. When I invite people to drop into their body in a session, they often feel if if there's grief in their life, which there almost always is grief, they'll feel first the tightness in their throat like the throat closing, the constriction in the throat or the chest. That's often where we carry grief. We often carry fear lower down in our solar plexus, in our our stomach. Not always. People can carry emotions anywhere. There's not a right place to carry emotions. It's just what often shows up. And so the sensation in the body, the tightness in the throat can be a doorway into the emotion. And when we start to gently and slowly, and yes, if there's a trauma history, we go very, very, very slowly. And then pendulating back out when it becomes too much, coming back to a resourced place. We want to be so mindful of the wisdom of the body in terms of how it can dissociate and going going up into the head and even going into the blank dissociated fog place 
are our protectors, brilliant coping mechanisms that helped us survive growing up. So sensation versus emotion, body versus heart, not versus, it's not either or, it's together. They are interwoven. It's a doorway one to the other. And then exploring what are the fear barriers. And so we've already named several. If there's a religious upbringing where some of the messaging was about your body is inherently sinful, the body is something to conquer. And we have an intense and fairly recent history as women of Mm -hmm. trying to annihilate our bodies, specifically our sexuality. Yeah. Right. That any expression of sexuality, even a hundred years ago, was seen as pathological. Right. Women sometimes underwent surgery to remove their ovaries, their uterus. The term hysteria, right, is linked through is hysterectomy. It's it's all connected to this place of Women's sexuality is too wild. It has to be tamed. Our connection to the moon, howling at the moon, that place of wild. So we're going to hold that also when we come back to the forest and your feet, right? What might feel both seductive and alluring and exciting about the wild, but also what we have historically been taught is wrong, wrong, is sinful, is not to be let out. Keep that in its cage. So there's a very potent religious historical messaging system, especially for women, but for men too. There's plenty of body shame for men as well in those paradigms. Men have to carry their bodies in such specific ways to be seen mm. as masculine. Oh. Yes. And they're expected to perform sexually in a certain way to be yeah. seen as masculine. So much pressure. Patriarchy does not serve anybody. I think we know that, but it's worth saying as often as possible. It does not serve anybody, no matter who you are, what your gender is, how you identify. And then we come to how emotions can feel threatening and growing up in an environment where emotions were not welcome, where big feelings were not welcome, where you may not have witnessed a parent being able to tend to their own big feelings in a responsible, loving, tender way with their own inner parent showing up. And so you may have received both overt and covert messages that emotions, big emotions, messy emotions are not okay. Shut that down. And then where do you go? You go up into your head. The head becomes the safe place. The head becomes the the cool chamber to counteract the hot, messy, out-of-control, wild, emotional life, those big feelings of frustration that you see young children having 
and how hard it often is for parents. And it was hard for me too. It's not easy to be with a child when they are in full expression of their very big, very loud emotions. And so the child learns. I go up into my head, I shut down, and the, 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 what's left, the belief that is formed, is it's not safe to feel my big feelings. I will be abandoned, I will be judged, I will be alone. And as I have often said in various places in my work, for a young child to feel the tsunami of big feelings without loving tender arms around that child would be too much. The only sane and wise thing to do would be to shut down and flee the body. And a child would learn that over time. I mean, I have memories of being a very young child and crying. I don't know if you remember this feeling, Victoria, of crying so hard that I couldn't breathe. Mm. Like that it was so powerful. And being alone, just sobbing, heaving. And then that stopped at some point. I never did that again past a certain age. And it was very young, probably age four. And I shut it down for years and years and years and years. And my parents were actually pretty good about making space for emotions, but nobody's perfect. There's no such thing as perfect parenting. So this isn't about blaming parents at all, but it's just what happens. Another reason why you might develop a belief and a blueprint inside that says emotions are scary is if you grew up with a parent or even both parents, anybody in your immediate household who expressed a lot of big emotions and, and sometimes scary emotions, maybe anger or rage or frustration, and it would come out in this sort of wild, unpredictable way, you would have shut down your emotional life because there wouldn't have been room for yours right? The parents' emotions were paramount, were center stage. So number one, shutting down your own emotions. And then number two, learning, oh my gosh, if that's what big emotion looks like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That looks terrifying. That feels terrifying. But that's less about the, pure, the core emotions of grief, disappointment, vulnerability, those vulnerable emotions that live in the underlayers, the soft underbelly of emotion. In that situation, and this is common, this is true for many, many, many families, what you're seeing are the top layer defense, defensive attacking emotions, the blame, the anger, Right, the frustration that's directed outward, right, that hasn't been contained, that's not being tended to, that's not being worked with. So it's a slightly different angle because I think when kids grow up seeing 
healthy emotion being expressed, even if it's big. The example that always comes to mind, because parents will ask me if they're going through a loss, is it okay for my kids to see me crying? And I say, absolutely. As long as they are seeing you crying in a responsible way, not making them responsible for your emotions, not expecting them to be your comfort. You know, they might see you crying and then your partner comes and holds you or you're crying and then you make a phone call to a friend who can hold that space with you. The example that comes to mind is after the flood tore through our property and and destroyed it in 2013 and it was devastating, of course. Um, my kids were young, four and nine. And they saw me crying a lot in the weeks that followed that devastation and that loss and that, you know, just a horrible experience to go through. They saw me crying a lot. They saw me reaching out for support. They wired in a template of, okay, when mommy cries, she's okay. She's okay. And she often picks up the phone if daddy isn't around. You know, my husband was trying to fix everything and tend to our, our house. So I spent a lot of time on the phone with my friends, often just crying. There were no words. To the point where now, if one of them sees me sad or crying, they'll say, do you want to call a friend? And I love that because not only do they know that they're not responsible for my emotions, but there's a template that's being downloaded of when, when you're really sad, it can be good to reach out and get support. You don't have to be in that space alone. So it makes sense that we are afraid of our bodies. It makes sense that we are afraid of our emotions. So when I say to clients, course members in my work, which I say quite often, the healing doesn't happen in your head. Yes, we have to learn cog accurate information. We have to correct cognitive distortions. We have to splash truth water on those unrealistic expectations and the shoulds that we all carry. That's an important first stage of doing inner work is that cognitive realm. But then the much bigger, scarier, often forgotten piece, often overlooked piece, even in many therapeutic modalities, although I think it's changing, is coming into the body and the heart. And letting ourselves cry those lost tears, the tears that got squelched, that had to be stuffed down. Doing that reparenting, that time travel work of going back to the six-year-old who learned it's not safe, there's no room for me, that's too scary. Yes, correcting the messages around the body, sexuality. None of this happens quickly by the way. Hmm. Yeah, for me, it's been so slow. And 
the most progress has come from the smallest, most gentle, slow mm. steps. Mm. But I have seen shifts in myself over time. Yes. One example is that I I got a massage for the first time when I was 27. Mm. And there are many reasons why I didn't get a massage before then. I mean, I never had a lot of disposable money, but at a certain point I could have afforded one massage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there is an internal block where I realized that without even consciously being aware of it, I just didn't think it was okay for me to get naked or strip down to my underwear mm -hmm. and lie under a sheet and have a stranger touch my body. Mm. I simply didn't think that that was okay. Mm -hmm. And I realized that on some level, I thought that my body belonged to my parents or to my boyfriend or to mm. some super puritanical version of God. Mm -hmm. But Finally, when I was 27, I went to this wellness center mm -hmm. where I did yoga classes and this wonderful massage therapist there. She was a registered nurse and she was a Reiki practitioner and a massage therapist. And mm -hmm. within like minutes of her starting the massage, I had tears come to my eyes mm. because – I could feel compassion in her touch. Mm. Like I could feel kindness and care and that she felt my humanity. Yes. And I was so used to just, oh, if a stranger touched me like that, it would be like a doctor or a nurse who maybe I felt more like an object around kind of. Mm -hmm. And then at the end – we were talking a little bit and she started tearing up hmm. and she said, I'm sorry, I'm just very empathic and I just feel a lot of sadness coming from you. Yes. And she said something about my feet. <laughs> she did. Which I can't remember now, but <laughs> she said something like, I don't, something about like my feet and just getting this image of like thunder or lightning or rain or something like that. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that story, Victoria. And it makes me think about how many body-based practices have come into our healing world in recent years from massage, body work, and cranial sacral, and Hakomi, um, all the somatic, somatic experiencing, Peter Levine's work, um, these ways of working with the body that help us connect right to the core of where our pain is and where our healing is, that for so long, it was just talk therapy and talk therapy absolutely has its place. But, you know, sometimes I often think about how new the field of 
psychology is, right? It is so very new, like a hundred years old. And we are learning more every day about what is required to heal. And to me at this point, I am so much more interested in what's happening at the level of the body and working at the level of the body. When I'm working with clients, being curious, bringing them back into their bodies, into their hearts, again, very gently at their own pace. And if there's a trauma history, it's a different type of work, one that I believe is best done in person anyway. So it's not work that I would typically do over a screen. But when you're describing that experience and all the layers around it, right? I shouldn't do this. I'm doing something wrong. My body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my parents or my boyfriend or God. And then being so brave and doing it anyway at 27 and almost immediately compassionate hands on your skin bringing tears and her being in that wordless potent space with you it's not what we traditionally call therapy but it is very therapeutic and then to have her witnessing afterwards being in empathy, tears in her eyes. That's also that, that co-regulation piece, that mirror, the mirror neurons, how we heal in relationship, having that reparative, safe experience. You know, so many people also have birth trauma of, you know, as I mentioned in our last episode, of being whisked away, being in a cold, separate space, not having skin-to-skin contact. So right from that outset, right? Many of us carry that body layer of trauma, which goes to a dissociative place. And then the healing inroads, the doorways of coming back in. And it wasn't a light switch moment. It wasn't like I left and I was like, wow, mm-hmm. I'm healed now. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was really struggling at that time. And mm. I it, – it was like a little pebble yes. in the foundation, but important. And then I found my therapist that I'm with now and I'm able to tell her when you ask me where 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 that shows up in my body, I draw a blank. I get mm. frustrated. I feel mm. angry <laughs> even. Mm. And we go so slowly. And for me, I have to be so literal about it. Mm-hmm. Like some people, I think, can get really poetic about how something feels in their body or how they experience it. Like they might say, it feels like, I don't know, an elephant is sitting on my chest or mm-hmm. I just, I'm seeing these certain colors or whatever. Mm-hmm. I have to just say, 
my throat feels tight. Yes. Period. <laughs> yes. I've also had a lot of health anxiety at times, and that can make focusing on your body and the sensations in your mm. body really scary and overwhelming sometimes. Yes. And if you struggle with feeling like you can't catch your breath, that can make a breathing exercise or a suggestion to take a deep breath feel like an assault. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> so I just kind of want to name that and just say that I've definitely found relief over time and it came from not obsessing and sometimes coming at it at a slant. Mm -hmm. So not, not saying, okay, I have to get in my body now and I have to do mm -hmm. all these exercises that just usually intensify the fear and discomfort and struggle. Yes. Yes. So good. I would love for you to read the poem that speaks to this place. So this poem is called Safe Place. She tells me to close my eyes and go to a safe place. The tree in the forest is ancient and beautiful, but its bark is hard and rough against my back. The golden meadow is soft, but teeming with ticks. The sky above the turquoise ocean is definitely hinting at looming tsunamis. Okay, inside then. The yoga studio, dimly lit and fragrant with patchouli, is haunted by a man leering at me from a back corner. She tries a different tack, asks me, where does anxiety live in your body? And it's like I'm a computer and she's searching for a file that doesn't exist. I'd like to advise her to hit Control-Alt-Delete, but all I say is, I don't know. Does it have a color? Does it have a sound? No. I am an alien in my own skin, an angry cloud floating above the whole ridiculous scene. She reminds me to breathe, asks if I can check in with my body. What do you feel? I take a frustrated beat, dry mouth, tight throat, pressure behind my eyes. She sits there with me, the clock ticks, and I breathe and feel without words. Now I am crying, and again, I don't know why. Can you tell me what you're feeling? Sadness, I finally say my grip slackening on the rope I've been using to pull the universe around. And now I am remembering being held in the ocean by someone I loved, cradled like a child. No hint of catastrophe in the sky or the waves. I was held. I was safe. So beautiful. Victoria, there's so many images that stand out for me. And what I love in terms of this conversation is how 
And you tell me if it's accurate to say that coming into your sadness, well, that there was so much protection against coming into the sadness. Every safe imagined place lurked with danger. But coming into that simple place in your body, dry mouth, tight throat, pressure behind my eyes, she sits there with me. I breathe and feel, and now I'm crying. That coming into the sadness and being in relationship with her, that she is also the safe place, allowed you to then find that, I don't know if it was a literal memory or, or just a, an imaginal place of being held by the ocean, right? So there's that crisscrossing, that interweaving of the imaginal with the emotional, the body, all living, all originating in the same vessel, the same belly of the unconscious. But that the emotion and the sensation were the portals into the body and then the images of safety Mm. were right there. Yes. When I started with her, even just her saying, let's take a deep breath Mm. was difficult for me. Yes. And I had to just allow myself to be not good at it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and see it as something that I could practice. Yes. All of it. Like truly have no expectation that I would be good at it or that what I said would be 100% true and accurate. So I even asked her, when you ask me, you know, where I feel it in my body or what I feel in my body, is it okay if I'm not entirely sure that what I'm saying (sighs) is true? Yes. Because I'm so used to trying to get the right answer Mm -hmm. externally that Mm -hmm. it's really jarring that no one else can answer that question in the entire world except me. That's right. And I'm so obsessed with being honest and accurate. Yes. Yes. That's the OCD brain, right? Mm -hmm. I have to make sure I'm being perfectly honest, perfectly accurate, and yet the healing lies in the body and – growing more comfort for that place of discomfort, more tolerance for the fact that there is not one right answer, right? That coming into the body is one of the ways that we heal anxiety, OCD, that the language of the body itself is medicine slowly, slowly, slowly growing incrementally tolerance for the fact that there is no one right answer. You can't look it up. You can't do an internet search, (laughs) right? You can't get a hundred percent. You can't fill in all the right bubbles. It's not that way. And a really beautiful memory that kept coming to me as we've been talking, Mm -hmm. is that 
probably about a year after that massage and sometime after I had been with my therapist, Martin and I were on a trip to New Hampshire and we were doing some hiking in the woods and some camping. And one day we were driving and we saw this river, might've been the Pemigewasset River along the highway. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful day in July. And Martin said, let's pull over and go into the river. And I can't swim, really. I can kind of keep myself afloat. This wasn't like a deep river. Um, mm-hmm. You could kind of wade into it. But I was scared. Mm-hmm. My gut instinct is, no, you can't just get into a river. <laughs> <laughs> And I heard my therapist's voice saying, Victoria, do you want to go in? That looks fun. Mm. Do you want to? And so Mm. I put my bathing suit on and I waded into the cold water and I felt it rushing against me. And it was so refreshing on this hot day. And then I just lay down on this big hot rock in the sun. Mm. And I felt like a mermaid. (laughs) And Mm. I watched Martin. He was riding the current almost like he was on a slide. And and I felt so happy and so at peace. Mm. And a big part of it was internalizing her voice saying, that looks like fun. Do you want – and I knew that if I I didn't, she would say, that's okay. Yes. But I also knew that if I did, she would celebrate that. Yeah. I love that. I love your therapist. I just want to say that. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> love her. Thank you. Whoever your name is, I love you. Um, and I love that that's a memory that has been swirling as we've been talking. And that place of memory is also a body place because our memories are stored in the body. So when something comes up like that from that place of memory, it's coming from the unconscious. It's coming from that delicious reservoir of wisdom, of richness that we all have. And it what brings to mind are a couple things. One is children are naturally in their bodies. They are in their emotions and they are in their bodies. Right? That's where they live. But then we go to school. And school is another place that can shut us down because it's not typically a very embodied place. And I think now more than ever with the testing and the requirements, there is a lot of sitting at desks. Right? There is not nearly enough time in play, in movement, being outdoors, being in nature, just running around, jumping rope, being on the monkey bars. So much of childhood and a healthy child depends on being in the body. And so it just struck me as this, this reclaiming in that moment of the internalized voice of your very loving therapist saying, that looks fun. Right, the idea of fun, the idea of play, that these are all doorways that can bring us back into more of our natural state and 
to circle around maybe even more of our free state, our wild state. That was an experience of immersion in the wild. Like, what? I can't go in the river. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) But you did. And it brought so much peace and feeling like a mermaid on the rock in your (laughs) bathing suit. Right? Having that felt experience of immersion and abandon and freedom. Right? I think that's what is embedded in those two intrusive thoughts, that place of true freedom, freedom from the shackles of all of those voices and messages that we've absorbed, freedom from shame, freedom from caring what other people think, random people. There's freedom from the tyranny of the mind that can take over. Being in the body is one of the pathways into that forest. Not literally. So I'm curious. I'll ask you again (laughs) without overthinking. What do you see? In your feet, where do they take you? Where do they want to go? What are they doing? When you come into your feet, maybe even bringing in the the imagery that the massage therapist felt in your feet. When I was a little kid, I loved... I mentioned this in our mornings episode, I think. I loved going outside barefoot Hmm. and I wanted to water the flowers barefoot. Like I wanted to walk across the grass barefoot. Yes. And somewhere along the way I put shoes on and I decided there could be all sorts of things in the grass that you could step on that could hurt Hmm. your feet. (laughs) Mm. But I think about stepping into that river putting the first the first parts of my body that went in were my feet into the water yes yes and I think about when I do go hiking or camping how free I can feel about my appearance like not thinking about what I look like Mm mm-hmm getting like dirt under my nails and just braiding my hair and leaving it in the same braid for two days or something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just picture myself stepping over moss, Mm -hmm. looking up at big redwoods. Mm-hmm. Feeling that connection. Mm-hmm. When you think about the feet, and therapists will often say this to help clients come back into their body, feel your feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. That the feet, the soles of our feet, and especially 
bare feet are our most frequent connection to the ground, to the earth, to what's underneath these floors, right? The earth itself. So I love all of those images, being barefoot, reclaiming that childlike place of freedom before fear came, right? Before you got scared of the creepy crawlies and what could be hiding in the grass, that place of innocence, reclaiming the wild, letting your feet lead the way, giving your feet that experience of freedom, dipping your feet into the water first. It's like your feet are these brave warriors. The feet are saying, well, we can do it. I'll go first. I'll be the first toe in the water. I'll walk barefoot in the grass. It'll be okay. It'll be fun. Martin says, trust your feet a lot to me on hikes. (laughs) Trust your feet. Yes. Trust your feet. And I say, I can't. Just Hmm. like I would say to my therapist, I can't take a deep breath. I can't tell you where I feel it in my body. I can't trust my but I can. (laughs) But you can. The default habit is I can't, but you are learning. We can learn to come back in and to re-inhabit these magnificent, miraculous, mysterious bodies. And you are learning slowly, following your own body's rhythm, your own timetable, with a very wonderful, safe therapist loving you the whole time. You're learning to come back in, to re-inhabit. I think where I'd like to close out is to encourage you to, if you feel inspired in any way, if you feel a little bit more brave after listening to this episode, to develop a little bit of a closer relationship, being curious about whatever body part tends to want your attention. So for Victoria, It's her feet. I'm sure there are other places too. But what came out today was this place of the feet. Um, As I said, for many of the people I work with, it's their chest or their belly or their neck or their shoulders, really anywhere, any place to notice what happens when you move toward it. Notice what are the blocks, what are the fears. Notice If it's um, not too scary, paying attention to your body. If it's not too far out your comfort zone to move toward that body place a little bit more than you have in the past. 
and perhaps open up a dialogue with it. What is it that you would like to share or open to memory, open to an image that might arise? And opening to that, to all of the layers that can come up around that, to the numb, to the nothingness, to the blank. So I'm encouraging you to make this active. Whatever you've received without overthinking it, whatever has alighted for you as an aha to maybe just jot down a few sentences or a drawing or an image or open up voice memos on your phone and allow something to come out creatively from your body. I love that. I feel so inspired by this conversation. Mm. Yay. I feel very dropped in and it's like my eyes have been closed the whole time except for a couple times I peeked out and saw Asher playing in the snow. Mm. Um, and this just fully embodied his, his happy place, his place of freedom, his place of wild, his place of, you know, being outside comfort zone and It just reminds me that we all have that place inside of us, right? That longs to be known, that longs to be remembered. Do you have a place that feels like that for you? Yes, it's the creek. Mm. Now, the second I sit at that creek, rain or snow, sun or clouds, I come home into my body, but also I would say an equally potent place is music and dance. Mm -hmm. Like putting on music in the kitchen and just dancing, even if it's 30 seconds and every single time just feeling like this, I'm home, that my, that our bodies are our homes. Right. And so what are those places that help us come home? So for me, it's the water and dance. Mm. Thank you, Cheryl. Oh, thank you, Victoria. If people want to find more of you and your work online, where should they go? My website is conscious-transitions.com and I'm on Instagram at Wisdom of Anxiety. And you can find me over at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate it and leave a review and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening.